We'll be talking more about some specifics as we get closer to November, but we'll, we'll leave that to another time. Just what are, what, are, what are Christians responsible to do and be engaged in? That's, it's a very important uh, process that we must be engaged in, in uh, what happens in our country. So we'll talk more about that. Today we're gonna to look at a very interesting passage. In fact, if you read through 1 Corinthians, you probably came to this passage and you might have kind of glossed over it because you said, well, that sounds really confusing. Um, uh, I'm not sure what to make of it, so you may have done what I've done in the past and I just kind of skimmed through it and just moved on to something that, that uh, uh, made a little more sense perhaps or whatever because sometimes we don't have a clue what the author is talking about. Well, the challenge in studying the Bible is deciphering first, what was the author saying to the people of that day? What was his message? What, what questions was he answering? And, and then we make the shift to contemporize the passage and, and bring the message into this century. What does the author say to us today? What is he trying to tell us? Is, there, is he answering questions that we have or not? This is the, the so what part of the question, and we all must always answer the so what. What difference does it make? What does it make in 2018 Eau Claire, Wisconsin? And that's the job not only of the preacher, I hope I help answer the questions of so what, but, but hopefully, as believers each read the Word of God on a consistent basis, all of you, you have to ask the question, so what? What does this mean to me today? What's, what difference does it make? Now, so far as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, we've seen a lot of relevant parallels between the ancient Greek culture and the American culture. There was hedonism, there was pleasure-seeking, the, the elevation of education or human reasoning. The difficulty of living a moral life in a highly relativistic and decadent society. They had all those issues too. We've looked at marriage and celibacy. We've looked at gray areas in our lifestyle that, that the Bible doesn't address directly. How do we deal with those issues? Biblical absolutes, community standards, and personal convictions. And last Sunday, we looked at true freedom. How to, how to be truly free in the expression of our faith, especially in those areas that are controversial regarding lifestyle. So how do, we, how do we exercise freedom exactly? We looked at six guidelines. Put others first, make it constructive, offend no one, win people to Jesus, imitate Christ, and do everything for God's glory. Now, today we're gonna look at head, hair, or heart. Head, hair, or heart. And I want us to try to make sense of this next passage as we turn to 1 Corinthians the 11th chapter, if you turn with me, it's on page 930 on the Bible in the rack in front of you. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. And as we get into it, if you haven't read it yet, you'll see, oh, this is interesting. Here we go. Let's jump into it. I praise you for remembering me in everything, for holding on to the teaching just as I passed them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For a man did not come from woman, but woman from man. 
Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. How many of you have read that before and said, I'm just going to keep going? <laughs> okay, that's okay, that's okay. We're going to try to do some uh, unpacking of this. First of all, uh, let's look at some background of this. Um, during this next four chapters that we're entering into now, Paul writes to address certain problems that had arisen in the Corinthian church. So there are certain problems regarding the public worship service. Okay? He's addressing issues that have arisen in their public worship service, the church service. And we have some of these same issues today, some of a different nature that will apply in a different context. The, the first problem had to do with the role of men and the role of women, and how they were to conduct themselves in the public worship service. Now, let's look, let's look by, first of all, looking at a definition uh, of, the, of the word head, because the word head is used a few times in here. We go, what does that mean? What does that mean? In verse three, it says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what does the word head refer to? Uh, the word for head in the original language in Greek, kathale, uh, traditionally meant the head, the lord of, or the superior rank. And there are three interpretations for this. You say only three? Yeah, well three for this particular word. Three interpretations. The first one had to do with the order of creation. The order of creation. Many think that this describes the order in which humans were created. So, so it says Christ is a head over every man. So in the order of creation, Christ created man. And then man, it says, is head over a woman. Singular note, which refers to the marriage relationship, not anything else, just the marriage relationship. And then God is the head over Christ. See, how does that work? Jesus spoke of God as being his head. Jesus spoke of being sent by his father in John 8, 18. He talks about speaking for the Father in verse 26 of John 8 and doing what pleases his Father. Jesus was in submission to his Father God. So, so Jesus came from God. He was sent by God. So that's order of creation. The head talks about order of creation. The other one, head, means source. Source. Like in the sense of a trailhead. If you're, if, how many people go hiking? How many people like hiking? Okay, if you're going to go on a hike, what's the first thing you have to find? The trailhead. You have, to, you have to find the beginning of that. The trailhead, the beginning of the trail. And if you're going to find the beginning uh, of a river, you have to find the head of the river. In northern Minnesota, one of the great fascinations I had up by Bemidji somewhere, and it's been a while since I was up there, but you can actually find the beginning, the, the head source of the Mississippi River. And as you, as you find it, you look at this, and it's, it's this, this little stream coming out of, the, out, of a, out of this lake, and you can walk across this river in, in flip-flops or tennis shoes. You know, it's no big deal. That's the, that's the trailhead, the source of the Mississippi River, the source. So God sent Jesus. He was the source. 
The Word became flesh. God created man. God was the source. And God created woman out of one of man's ribs. Okay? Man was the, the source. Now, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, Eve, being protective of the marriage, asked Adam one day if he was seeing another woman. And Adam replied, of course not. He says, you're the only woman on earth. Which is the correct answer if your wife ever asks you that question. No, you're the only woman on earth. Well, that next night, Adam, Adam was awakened by Eve poking him in the chest. And he woke him and he said, what are you doing? She said, I'm counting your ribs. Okay, just a little humor. Very little. Okay, so the head equals source. That, that basically the woman came from man. Now the third option for head re, uh, re, refers to spiritual life, in the spiritual life. Jesus is the, this is number three. Jesus is the source of spiritual life to man. And man is the spiritual leader of the wife. Okay, so the Bible says. Now Gordon Fee says this, and I agree with him since he's a lot smarter than I am. He says head, that we just looked at, is probably a combination of all three definitions. So it's probably all three of those definitions combined. So when the word head is used, it probably combines all of those definitions. But regardless, we do know that God is a God of order and God establishes lines of accountability and lines of authority. Lines of accountability and lines of authority. One of the problems today is that we confuse value and authority. Do not confuse value and authority. Don't confuse those two. Verse 11 says, in the Lord. Um, in Galatians 3, 26, and I think you have this in, uh, on the PowerPoint as well, says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That is a value statement of the value of every human being, every created human being. And Paul wrote these words to a culture that was very, very, you think we're divided today. They, this was very divided. They were divided racially, much more than we are today. They were divided economically, and they were divided by gender, by sexes. And Paul affirms, and Jesus taught and practiced that all humans are equal in God's sight. In fact, Jesus radically raised the value and status of all people, especially women. Christianity radically altered the divide between the Jews, God's chosen people, and the Gentiles, which is the rest of us, the Jews and the Gentiles. He just completely changed that, and he leveled the playing field and said, you are all equal in God's sight. There's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no, you know, he basically leveled this. They're all one in Christ. Only one distinction is one in Christ. Now, can, Contrary to contemporary feminist ideology, Christianity in general, and Jesus in particular, did more to elevate the value of all people, especially women, than anybody else. And you look at the other religions of the world. All the other religions, we look at Hinduism. Hinduism practices a caste system which puts us all in categories. You can't move from one caste to the other, you can't move up or down, and it, it basically relegates people to subjugation no matter what caste you're in. There's no equality in Hinduism. What about Muslims? Go to Saudi Arabia, go to Iran. Find out what it's like for women. Any place the Muslim faith is predominant, there's a total disregard and devaluing of women. 
That doesn't happen. Jesus came and brought equality. He said, you're one in Christ. Now, where Muslim countries have become westernized, secularized, or Christianized, that has changed. But largely, the tradition, everything. I mean, Saudi Arabia, they're just starting to let women drive. I mean, what is this? It's, it's 2018. So, so the whole idea that, that somehow Christianity dehumanizes women or degrades women is totally false. Jesus came and Paul writes that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now again, don't confuse value with authority. We're gonna talk, talk a minute about Ephesians 5 so that we can put this in perspective. Ephesians 5, 21 to 25 says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the starting point. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he turns and says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay. Then, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, just a brief explanation, because all throughout this passage in 1 Corinthians is husbands, wives, head, whatever. Let's, fig let's figure that out. Verse 21 that we looked at is submit to one another, and that's the attitude and context. In other words, we're to submit to one another. Mutual respect, admiration, working together. And the rest of this passage in Ephesians does not speak to value, it speaks to lines of authority, lines of authority. Someone has to be in charge of every institution, you know? And you can argue with God all you want to, but when God set up the family, he said, the person in charge, the leader, is the husband. God said that. Don't complain to me, talk to God about it. But then he says to the husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus did nothing for himself. Jesus didn't do anything for himself. He did nothing to, to benefit himself. Everything Jesus did was for the health and well-being of his bride, the church. The church. And that should be our attitude of husbands to wife, men to women. Everything we do as husbands is for the health and well-being of our wife or our sister's in Christ and to protect, protect them if necessary. And I've always said this, if, if husbands love their wives like Jesus loves the church, our wife will have no problem submitting because everything we do is for the benefit. Now, remember, these are lines of responsibility and authority. These are roles we to, we're playing. The issue of value we already addressed. It's all equal value, equal equality. In Christ, there are no Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, male or female. We are one in Christ. Don't confuse value and authority. Don't confuse roles and responsibilities. Now, some people think that if I have, if I have more authority, then I'm more important to God. If I have more authority, I'm, I'm more important to God than, than whoever I'm over. Well, you know, when my kids were being reared at home, I had authority over them. Does that mean I was more valuable to God than them? Of course not. It has nothing to do with value. It has to do with roles and responsibility and authority where God placed us. In God's, God's eyes, we're equal value, but we are each given responsibility. Some are leaders, some followers, some have higher authority. And when we balance authority with love, servanthood, and serving, as in marriage, 
Any problem we create disappears. Disappears. And God places women in authority as well as men. The Bible has great examples of women leaders as well as male leaders. Just so you know, the Wesleyan church denomination of which we belong to allows all positions, whether it's general, superintendent, the superintendent, senior pastor, any position to be held by men or women because they believe in the equality and when a person is placed in authority, then we are in submission to that person in authority. For many years, we had a, a woman that was the general superintendent, an incredible woman of God that was the head of the whole denomination. She led the denomination. Now, the family is one institution, the church is another. That's how God set it up. So that's, we got through the hardest part. Well, maybe not, we'll, we'll go through the next part. So what is the rest of this passage about? What does it have to do? Let her be head covering. This is weird. Okay, head covering. Now the next verses refer to some cultural issues which we can, some, that, some we can understand, some we cannot, okay? It's okay not to have all the answers. You know, some, one of the things that pastors like to say, I have all the answers. No, forget it. I don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. There are questions we get to this point. We go, I don't know. I don't know what it means. That's okay. What we do know, okay, is that culturally there were some norms when it came to the public worship setting. So they came together. There were some, some expectations or norms. These were community standards that were clearly understood by them. Today, not so much. We're not sure what exactly there were. Now, in public worship, they had expectations. Now, what happens when we go to a sports stadium and the announcer says, Please rise for the singing of the national anthem. Okay, and that used to be non-controversial, but pretty much everybody gets up for that. Everybody stands. What do the men typically do when they stand for the national anthem? Take off their hat. They take off their hat. Okay, why? Why do they do that? It's a sign of respect for the American flag and all that it stands for. If we're together and we bow our heads and pray and we stand, what do men typically do? Take off their hat. Remove their hat as a sign of respect. Now that, that's a cultural, cultural thing. Years ago, we used to, if you, if you passed a lady on the street, you'd tip your hat or you'd take your hat off. You know, there are certain things that we used to do. It was a cultural thing, it was a sign of respect or, or whatever, it was cultural. But remember, God looks at the heart, not the hat. Just saying. Previous church where we were at, we had ushers that were very steeped in tradition, and and uh, we had the new generation. They had some teenagers and twenty somethings that actually were trying to get into church, and they had a hat on, and he'd say, "You can't come in here with that." And I, <laughs> oh my goodness, I about hit the ceiling. I said, "No, you can't do that." They're coming in. God's looking at the heart, not the hat. And I had to, we had to reeducate some of our traditional. Uh, ushers to say, no, if they're coming to church, you just let them come in. We don't have a hat code here. God doesn't care. People seem to, but God did. Now in Corinth, if a man kept his head covered when praying, he dishonored his head, which refers to God. God was the head. If a woman did so without a head covering, she dishonored her head. And we're not sure if it's either her husband or God. Okay. And there was some cultural reason that that happened. Now, the purpose of the veil or covering in the Far East was 
for women's protection. Sir William Ramsey explains it this way. He says, in Oriental lands, the veil, or the head covering, is the power and honor and dignity of the woman. With a veil on her head, she can go anywhere in security and profound respect. But without the veil, the woman is a thing of not whom anyone may insult. A woman's authority and dignity vanish along with the all-covering veil that she discards. That was then, okay? This is now, okay? This is, that's not now. That was back then. And I think when we look at the culture, we understand that in, the, in this particular culture, there were certain norms of behavior that offended other people. And so Paul addresses it in the passage. Sounds crazy. Sounds crazy to us today. So what, what does that mean? Okay. And that was not a biblical absolute. It was not an eternal principle for all people of all time. That was their community standard. Okay, that was their community standard. No one today knows exactly what hair length, hairstyle, head coverings, or veils had to do with the worship service. Not sure. All we know is that whatever freedoms they were exercising, it was causing a problem in the church, and Paul was asked questions, so he's addressing the problems in the church. And Paul had written, I would rather not eat meat or drink wine in order not to stumble anyone. And some men and some women were causing a distraction. Some women in exercising their freedom insisted on not wearing something that in that culture demonstrated that she was in submission to her husband. And that was a, that was a problem. So how many of you have seen the movie Big Fat Greek Wedding? Okay, you guys remember that where, where um, they're talking about the head, the Greek mother says of her husband, he's the head. He's the head, but I'm the neck. And it goes, the head goes wherever the neck tells it to. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but we're not Greek. We're, anyway, never mind, we'll go on. Now, what, one side implication. There's an interesting statement here. And I'm not sure what all to make of this, except that in verse 10, it says, this would offend the angels who observe the conduct of believers in the church gathering. And you know what that says to me? That means that the angels are in observance when believers get together and worship God. You know, we, we don't think about that very often, but basically when we come together to worship God, there are angels around observing. They're here, okay? We don't see them, but basically they come. Why? They're drawn to praise, of, praise of, uh, and worship of Jesus Christ. So when you think about that, the implication is that angels gather around when we come and we have worship service. So just, just something to be aware of. So Paul says to these guys, knock it off. He says, stop, because the unity of the church is more important than the exercise of free expression. And we talked about that before. The unity of the body is more important than me exercising my freedoms, whatever that is. Don't undermine the unity of the church, the family of God. Now, we get to hair. Along with, with, with other cultural issue, issues, evidently hair and appearance had entered into the conflict. Now, no one that I read and studied is exactly sure what this section is about, but, but I think we all know that in recent history, hair has been an issue in the church, okay? In fact, appearance in general. In fact, I want us to look at a video and just see what, what hair has changed over the years.
Okay, wow. Hairstyles. Now, that becomes very important in some, uh, some places. I remember men had long hair in the 70s, and that was an issue. Uh, they had shaved heads in the 90s and spiked and colored straight and curled. It was all those other things. We, are, we have really good friends who are today in ministry um, because a church loved them and accepted them, even though they came in with weird hair and color and different things, dress and tattoos and stuff. Um, they went into, into a church. They, were non, they didn't know Jesus. They just heard church was something to go to. And they came in, uh, three couples, three, three married couples, young couples, early 20s. And they had, I mean, we're talking back then, weird colored hair, tattoos, piercings, everything you can imagine. And they came and they sat in the front row. And, and you can imagine how, you know, people, well, these people accepted them. They loved them and said, wow, God has sent us some great people. And so they loved them. Now, it wasn't long before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, they're still wearing weird stuff and different things, but they're in full-time ministry, some of them today, because people accepted them as they were when they came into their church service. So making sure that we don't major in the minors, very, very important, Re realizing that God doesn't look at the hair. God looks at the heart. God's not going to judge someone by their tattoos or their piercings or their hair or their clothes. God looks at the heart. And we all need to remember that. Now, I want to give some guidelines. This is Roman numeral two. Guidelines that Paul said to them and to us. And it applies, applied back then and it applies to today. Letter A, number one, worship should unite, not divide. Worship should unite, not divide. Our whole purpose of gathering together for worship is not to focus on dress and clothing and styles or culture. Our purpose is to unite, to focus on God, to lift Jesus high. That's why we come together. Now, if you were fortunate enough to get tickets to a Packer game at Lambeau Field, how many of you have attended a game at Lambeau Field? Okay, you guys need to make those available sometime for me, but that's okay, that's another thing. Um, you will notice weird things in a stadium. All kinds of costume, dress, jerseys, face paint, some, they go without shirts. They, they do all kinds of weird things. And that's great, but if I'm watching the game on television and all the cameras do is pan the audience to show the weird dress and all this other stuff, I'm gonna be really ticked because I'm there to see the game. I wanna watch the game. If we're looking at what everybody's wearing, it, it defeats the purpose. We're over there for the most important thing, winning the game. Now in a church setting, if we're believers, we should not try to wear anything or do anything that focuses attention on me rather than God. So if someone comes in with a very distracting appearance, like a Seahawk jersey or something like that, we should not, not pay any attention. Don't reject, don't reject or judge them, okay? Just, just say it. So when someone comes in, they, they, may, they may be wearing something weird, that's okay. We need to accept every kind of clothing in our services. I've, I've said before that we need to have every type of clothing and services. T-shirts, jeans, shorts, suits and ties, professional casual, flip-flops and wingtips. Why? Because I want people of all types to be able to walk in and find someone dressed like them and feel comfortable. Wouldn't that be nice? They're not sure what to wear. And they find somebody, oh, somebody else has a t-shirt and jeans. Somebody, oh, somebody's wearing a suit and tie, good, I'll be okay. Uh, somebody's wearing flip-flops, oh, good. Pastor doesn't wear flip-flops, not in the pulpit, but that's okay. Um, 
finding that so that when people come in, they, they feel comfortable. We had a family in Seattle that had out-of-town guests, and they, uh, they had a young man that had never been to church before, ever. And he said, boy, I don't know. They, they wanted him to come to church on a Sunday morning. He said, I don't know if I should go. And they said, no. He said, all I have is a Budweiser t-shirt. And they said, that's fine. You can just come. And so he did. He came, first time. That bud was for him, I guess. I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> Worship. Worship should unite, not divide. Letter B, be sensitive to cultural differences. Worship should be welcoming, being especially sensitive to first-time guests. It is, when, when you grow up in the church or you've been in this church or whatever forever, it, you don't realize how intimidating it is to go to another church or to go into church for the first time. I've had people who've never been to church say, well, can anyone go? Can, any, can anyone go? Yeah, yeah, anyone can go. Um, what, what, what happens? In, in a service, you know, they, they've never, if they've never been in a service, I mean, it's really, it can be intimidating. One of the issues we have here is that people come in our parking lot, they look at our building and they go, where's the door? Where's the door? They, we're going we're gonna to rectify that. We, not only signage, but we need to have, you know, there are certain things we're going we're gonna to work on over the next few months or next year. But basically, uh, when people come, they don't know what to expect. They come in the door and they go, I, I need to use a restroom. Is there a sign somewhere? You know, uh, what do I do with my kids? What, you know, there are a lot of things. And if we want to be welcoming to people, saying, think about what it's like to, for you. And, and you know what I encourage you to do? Okay. Is... Just go visit another church sometime, okay? Now keep, keep your tithes here, okay? But, but go, vi <laughs> go visit another church and find out what it's like to be a newcomer and go to a small church, go to a big church, whatever. Just, just, just do that on occasion and, and, and get an awareness of what it's like to be the person nobody knows in the room and say, I want to rectify that in our church so that when someone comes in, and you can tell when they're visitors because they kind of look around, you know, you're not sure, or you don't recognize them, how can we engage them in conversation? And many of you do a really, really good job of that. And I want to encourage you to keep, keep that up. Can anyone come? Why did they come? Now, historically, and, and um, don't get offended, I'm just going to say what it's like for, for a, a, an unbeliever or someone who's unchurched that doesn't know, um, we want unchurched people to enter a lobby we call a narthex. An auditorium we call a sanctuary. Sit on benches we call pews. Tell them to turn over in their Bibles. What does that, what does that mean? Turn over in your Bibles. Take an offering. Sing 200-year-old songs called hymns, accompanied by an instrument they've never heard called an organ. And then we expect them to come back again. Man, it's too far outside their box. We need to lower our barriers, offer coffee, okay? Lower the barriers, offer, and be sensitive to cultural differences. Be sensitive to cultural differences. Letter C, and this is in this passage, don't blur the line between the sexes. Don't blur the line between the sexes, between men and women. There's an element of this issue in this passage. To most, the differences are obvious, and I praise God for the differences. Praise God. Man is to be distinguished from and distinguishable from woman and woman from man. Now, I used to hear old-timers complain in the 70s. They'd say, everybody has long hair now. I can't tell a man from a woman. And I'd say, that's easy. Women wear earrings. <laughs> oh, well, that doesn't work anymore. Okay, so 
There are ways, but trying to make sure that we have a distinguishing between men and women. Remember, again, Paul is addressing cultural issues that may have spiritual implications for men and women. And Paul says it's a shame to blur the lines between men and women. And there's been a breakdown in the distinction between the sexes and taken to extreme. And we can go into all those issues where there's transgenders and using the restrooms and all kinds of, you know, uh, being dressed in drag. You, you can take it every which way you can imagine. But that's, God said, don't. Letter D, understand the partnership of men and women. Understand the partnership. Verse 11 says, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of the woman. Remember, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. This is a partnership. It's not competition. It's partnership. There's a mutual dependence on one another. And finally, the church is no place to be contentious. The church is no place to be contentious. Verse 16 says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Bottom line is this. God does not look at our head. God does not look at our hair. God does not look at what we wear. God looks at our heart. Head, hair, or heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you bring words of wisdom through Paul for us that actually apply today. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we, as we move forward, we will see the truth that you have for us in the Word of God. Father, thank you that, that there are always things that we can learn and glean out of passages that are a little bit difficult. But thank you that that we can find clarity in, in these things. And we don't have to know everything, but we know enough about this passage and what it says. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as we move on into, into to the end of 1 Corinthians and the last half, that, that you would continue to open our eyes to the, to the living Word of God. And God, that we would see with clarity the truths that you bring for each and every one of us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.